Hello, do you have a child who has problems with prioritization or organization or even time management? Well, my next guest, Dr. Bibi Priyesh, and I talk about executive functioning and how you can spot it and what can be done about it. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you over on the other side. See you there. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studio. Today, I'm Dot. I'm joined with Dr. B.B. Priyesh. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Not a problem. So let's start off a little bit with telling me a bit about yourself. Sure. So um, I work as an educational therapist um, and, and learning specialist in West Los Angeles. Um you know, some people, a lot of people in California know what educational therapy is. People in other parts of the country might not know, but um, essentially, my job is to help support um, people who have different types of learning disabilities. Um, so a lot of my work is spent um, on doing actual remediation work one-on-one -on -one with, you know, different students. And I see people, you know, as, as young as first grade and all the way through college. Um, and then another part of my job is, you know, a, a lot of advocacy work. So advocacy around um, helping kind of the neurotypical population understand neurodiversity, understand learning disabilities, um, and to hopefully push to shift some of our systems so that they can be more inclusive um, of, of the differences that we see in people's uh, learning. All right. Now, I've read in your bio on your website that you were educated across three different countries. Yes. What was that like? <laughs> witnessing three different curriculums from different countries. I mean, that had to be interesting to see how different countries kind of educated their own. Yeah, um, so I'm Iranian-American. I, I grew up in Iran and, and went to school there to, for all of my elementary years. Um, and then after that, I, I moved to the U.S. to Los Angeles. So I did m my middle school years and then um, part of high school here. And then I moved to Canada, um, to Ontario, specifically to, in Toronto, um, and finished high school there at a time where um, Ontario had 13 years of schooling instead of 12. So I finished my OAC year there. Um, and then I, I returned to the U.S. for for kind of like my higher ed. But um yeah, I mean, it, it's it's been very interesting to see a how you know these different um, curriculums and approaches to education um, are different, but also all the ways in which they're the same. Um, and I would say that actually, when it comes to how we treat difference and how we treat disability, they're probably more similar than different. Um, I would say probably I would say Canada is is the country where I felt like there were more resources, more understanding, mm -hmm. 
but still at the roots, um, we have a very meritocratic education system there too. Um, and, and I think that that actually tends to be true all over the world. Um, we, we, tend to have just historically built systems of education that are more about um, you know, focusing on a particular ideal of how learning should happen and maybe ideal curriculums, um, and then essentially othering people who who don't necessarily fit into that ideal. Um, I have not, I, I don't feel I've been uh ever exposed to um, like a large education system that's really built to reflect the differences that exist among learners. Um, so yes, many differences, but also many similarities. Now, would you say that Canada is got is more resource heavy when it comes to dealing with those who are on the spectrum and neurodivergent? Um, I mean, I, I to be honest, I, I'm not sure that I can speak to um, all of Canada because my experience was very limited to to where I was and especially at the time that I was there. Um, I I would say, you know, if if I were going to say, I, I think certain European countries probably do a much better job um, even than Canada. Canada still, to me, kind of falls under that. North American um, outlook, but do they do a better job than we do in the U.S.? Yes, I do think that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I and I think that the reasons for that are, you know, I mean, all this stuff is really intertwined with um, our politics, our history, our ideologies. Um, so it's not like just isolated to education; it's sort of mixed with everything else that impacts um, how we view differences. All right. Now, when you're dealing with your clients, what kind of executive function problems do you come across? Um, so uh, I tend to get a lot of people, a lot of students, a lot of kids in both middle school and high school, mm -hmm. um, many of whom have an official diagnosis, um, either, you know, an executive function disorder or ADHD, which I really look at ADHD as an executive function disorder. Um, but I, I don't think that only people who have an ADHD diagnosis have an executive function disorder. Um, so I, I, and I, I see a lot of that sort of in those grades. And um, I think it's sort of marked by oftentimes it's marked by, um, you know, being incredibly capable, gifted, um, and just not being able to function in, I mean, essentially in life, obviously, it's not just related to schooling. Um, so, and, and, you know, no two kids with with um, executive function difficulties or disorders are the same, but there are some general principles that, you know, you sort of see across the board. Now, for those listening, can you define what executive functioning is so people have some idea so they can look at their own child and think, oh, my child has this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the way that I tend to explain it to parents um, is that the executive functions. Um, so if you if you think about the brain like an orchestra, the executive function is the conductor of the orchestra. It's the the frontal lobe's ability to basically 
organize and call on all the different parts of our learning, our neurodevelopmental constructs, and to bring them together in the ways that we need so that we can perform the tasks that we need to perform or just basically function through life. So it's basically our highest level um, of, of functioning, and it's the task of bringing everything together. So um, it's very much possible, for example, that there are deficits in different parts um, mm. of our learning. So for example, um, one, one thing that we know exists a lot alongside um, executive function disorder are, are difficulties with memory or difficulties with attention, mm. et cetera. Um, but it, it may very well be, for example, that a lot of the other learning skills like auditory processing, visual processing, logic and reasoning, writing abilities, reading abilities, all those things are intact, but the brain is not able to bring everything together um, mm -hmm. so that so that we can function in the ways that we need. Um, so it's it's really that conductor of the brain, really that higher level part of the brain um, that that breaks down. And I think, um, you know, I think for for uh, a, a lot of um, people, it comes back to this ability to be able to organize yourself and to see and feel yourself in time and space. Um, and, you know, so a lot of the things that we see, for example, the issues around planning, um, organizing and you know, looking ahead, thinking, you know, on really simple things like, I have a test next week, so I need to study, you know, a little bit every single night so that I can get to there. Um, or things that are even more concrete. I need to write an essay on such and such. I'm going to put my thoughts in order about it. Um, all of these things can be impacted. Um, I think one aspect of executive dysfunction that we don't talk about enough um, is how much it also impacts our emotional regulation. So uh, people with these types of difficulties also struggle to regulate themselves emotionally. And so one of the things that we tend to see, um, unfortunately, is a lot of misdiagnosis of executive function issues as behavior issues. Oh. Um, and, you know, that that that's a, a big area where I think we need to do a lot more training so that we understand that the 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 reason for this misbehavior, for example, that we're seeing in, in the classroom um, has to do with, with an inability to regulate or an inability to inhibit, et cetera. Right now, how does executive function develop through childhood and adolescence? Um, so that that's a, a very good question um we we know that it's something that is developing throughout childhood and adolescence and actually well into adulthood so um you know and there's sort of like a thing going around about how our executive functions don't completely develop until we hit 25 um i'm, I'm not sure about those kind of like cutoff ages um i think that we're always we're always evolving and building our executive function mm -hmm. abilities but for people who very specifically have a disorder in executive function, um, they, you know, things don't develop in the in the neurotypical way that we would expect. Um, however, for example, I I do see, and, and these are something that also needs to be taught. Like it doesn't mm. just get developed in sort of like a vacuum. Um, a huge part of schooling is supposed to be 
supporting the development of executive functions. Unfortunately, um, not every educator is aware of the importance of teaching executive function and scaffolding executive function and putting things in place so that students can slowly develop these skills. Um, for, for, for people who have a disorder in it, however, um, it, it's not so easily taught. I mean, they, they really do, um, to do struggle to, to develop it, but it develops throughout our lifespan. Now, how do you help your, your clients who have like poor time management and organization skills? I mean, I know that's a long process, but what do you go about? How do you go about doing it? I mean, it's sort of, to be completely honest, it, it sort of starts off with me becoming their executive functioning hmm. heart <laughs> or their temporal <laughs> lobes or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, I, I think this is one of the biggest frustrations that I see with parents is that they don't always recognize that, um, that, you know, the, the frustration that they feel about having to do that for the child um, is not unusual. You really do have to do it. And then as as you're doing it, the idea is that in, in small, little, digestible, clear, repetitive um, uh, bites, mm -hmm. you know, the, the student can sort of start to develop and internalize some of these abilities. Some of them, you know, some of it is really about helping them come up with coping strategies um, or strategies that, you know, so for example, if a student is checking in with me twice a week and we're going through everything that they need to do and we plan it and we put it on their calendar and then I regularly do daily check-ins with them. Did you do this? You need to do that. Um, so it, it is a lot of kind of, um, I guess for lack of a, a better word, micromanaging, especially in the beginning. Um, and, and, and to help them kind of get into a regular structure and rhythm. So very, very strict structure um, is, is incredibly important because without that, you know, people with executive function difficulties just kind of like, they just kind of float out there. It looks like they're checked out. I think a lot of times that's why they're seen as sort of like not paying attention. But it's not so much that they're not paying attention. It's that they can't organize themselves. Um, and they can't organize their attention either, despite the ability to be able to hyper-focus on things that are um, of, of high, that motivate them and are of high interest to them. Because that's another thing that I hear a lot, like, no, there's nothing wrong with him. You know, he does really well. Like, he, he can focus on playing a video game for two hours. Um, and we, we know that to be a hallmark. It is possible mm -hmm. to hyper-focus. Um, but that's not the same as being able to kind of do what we all have to do in life, which is to focus on things that are not really of that much interest to us. Yeah, I've heard that before where parents say, yeah, he can focus on his video game for hours, but he can't focus on his own work. Right. And you have to remember, you know, something like a video game is kind of a dream for um, for, for that kind of brain because it is constantly 
giving you stimulation um, and it is constantly giving you feedback. Um, and that's very different than, for example, reading a novel, um, which doesn't provide that kind of um, stimulation that's necessary. So it's not that they are being lazy, um, which is what we hear <laughs> a lot or that, you know, they're, yeah. they're being misbehaving or whatever. Um, it really is uh, an inability. No. Now, for a parent who wants to know, what are some of the common signs of executive functioning difficulties? <laughs> I think the most common sign is, what, you know, the, the, the parent's frustration and, and wanting to scream um, and, and throw their child through the window because it really does. Um, when for people who are not familiar it seems like the person, the other, that the child is being defiant, mm -hmm. that they are purposefully trying to not fall. Like, the, you know, the things that you hear is like, I have told you this 10 million times. It's like two steps. Like, why can't you do this? Um, and it, it can be, it's a whole sort of, um, a huge uh, sample of different things, like things from like getting ready in the morning to go to school to, you know, did you bring your backpack and your stuff home to I just gave you two directions and you're not following them and you've checked out. Um, and then, you know, there there's sort of the school related things, your your failing grades or frustration, um, you know, basically, I mean, I think it's one of the things um, that is easiest to measure for parents by the level of their own frustration of having to basically manage their child, because that's essentially what they're doing. On top of being their own sort of managing person, they also have to manage their child beyond what you would expect a child mm -hmm. of, of that age to, to require. Um, so I would say that's sort of like the the first sign, and then of course when you begin to see you know declines in in schools and grades and feedback from teachers, um, a lot of issues around inhibition. You know, parents are like, I've told you a million times not to do that, you know, but you still do it, or I've told you a million times to do that, but you don't do it. Um, so I think all of those are signs. It's kind of like my mom; she's always telling me a thousand times to walk the dog, and my mind just like checks out and I yep. either forget or I push it off and I see the frustration in her yeah. but my mind just doesn't register that frustration that she's feeling yes yes um and you know it, it can also lead to you know another sign I think is um you know it can lead to a lot of friction in families mm -hmm. um and it, the friction comes from a, a lack of understanding really you know where the parents are like why can't you do this and the child is oftentimes also thinking to themselves why can't i do this yeah. but they don't understand that they actually can't um so a lot of the work is also in in kind of helping everyone because it's something that impacts the entire household uh, and beyond um so a, a lot of it is also in helping everyone understand like this really is a disability and we really need to come up with systems around it and, and not get frustrated with each other to the extent that it's possible. Now, if a parent is unsure their child is neurodiverse, what signs should they look for before they even think about getting them tested or calling them lazy for that matter? Well, I mean, 
neurodiverse is sort of a big umbrella term, right? So it, it sort of depends on um, what they are suspecting. So, you know, it's possible that, you know, a, a child has ADHD. It's possible that they have a reading disability. They have a disability in math. You know, there are all kinds of different things that could be going on. Um, my big thing to parents is always to trust your gut feeling. Um, you know, when, when you just really feel like something is off. Um, and I'm actually a big proponent of, of testing and evaluation, because even if there is nothing going on, you at least get that answer. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so you can kind of rest easy. Um, I, I do think that you have to be kind of aware and, um, smart about the ways that you go about getting evaluated. Um, but one other thing that's, I think, also important to, to say is that a lot of these things also run in families. Um, so there is a genetic component. Um, and, you know, especially if parents never had a diagnosis or treatments themselves, they might just mm -hmm. kind of feel like, this crazy, frustrating life that we leave, lead is the norm. Um, so, but generally speaking, I think that parents should listen to their gut feeling. And when they feel like something is off, look into it, you know, just look into it. Um, and you don't necessarily have to get a full evaluation. You can kind of do different screenings to see if there is um, flags that you need to look deeper into. Um but yeah, I, I would say, and, and the, um, you know, I, I think one other thing that to remember is um, they're sort of like stages. So for example, a lot of reading issues, undiagnosed reading issues mm. really come out around third and fourth grade. A lot of executive function issues really come out in that transition to middle school um, mm. when, you know, kids are suddenly expected to be able to handle a lot more of that executive functioning piece. Um, so just stay attuned, uh, you know, try, try to read a, a little bit and understand a little bit about it. But if you, if you sort of have a hunch, it's not a bad idea to take a look um, and see if there is in fact something going on. No, let's talk a little bit about inclusivity because I grew up not knowing I was autistic. Mm. And I was put in a special education room because all my parents knew at the time was he had ADHD and he had a learning disability and he was dyslexic. Now we are learning about more and more students and children coming out saying my child is is um, autistic. But there aren't as many schools that can handle the inclusivity of teaching a child who is autistic. What can yeah. we do about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really the the million dollar question. I mean, I think, you know, and, and we have to recognize that these things take time. And there are many, 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 many um, generations of people who've sort of been sacrificed, essentially, um, for us to be standing where we're standing, but we still have a long way to go. I do see, despite the fact that I don't think we have inclusive practices in schools, I, I think that I our know. special education, um, our approach to special education 
is quite problematic. Mm. But despite that, I also see almost like a revolution around the, the concept of neurodiversity um, and people speaking up and people recognizing that they themselves weren't diagnosed or weren't diagnosed properly and wanting to shift things for their children. Um, so I think that, you know, the consciousness is growing among people, I don't think that our systems are keeping up um, and, you know, continue to sort of remain quite ableist and quite archaic um, mm. in the way that they approach, you know, mm. these differences. Um, but, you know, I, 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 there is no easy answer, right? I mean, we all have to be, this is one of the reasons why um, a huge, huge part of my work and my passion is around helping people understand that education is actually quite political um, and that we have to engage in the politics that are going to translate into the, the everyday experiences of people in, you know, in schooling and also beyond, because what happens in your school is going to impact, um, you know, what happens when you come out of school and go into the workplace. So um, yeah, I, I think it's sort of a, a, a continued um, resistance and fights. And every single one of us, I think, has a responsibility to speak up um, mm. and to join in that in that fight um, for for inclusivity and anti-ableism. Um, do I do I see it as much as I would like? No. Do I think it's overall getting better? Yes. Um, so yeah, that's where, that's what I would say. <laughs> now, why do you think there, why do you think us as the U S are so, is so far, far behind when it comes to the neurodiverse and helping those who are neurodiverse in the school systems? I mean, I've talked with people all over and their school systems and their resources are much better than we are. I mean, my personal opinion um, is that it's capitalism. You know, it's because our country and our history and the ideologies at the roots of our country is, is all about profits. And um, when you are not seen as being able to maybe perform as well um, in that system, you become disposable. Um, so I sort of really see it as as a as a reflection of of colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy. I mean, all of these things are intertwined. Um, and yes, I, I think that we culturally tend to be very ableist because, um, you know, if you're not able-bodied or able-minded or typical neurotypical, um, you're not going to be able to, you know produce as well and as much. And so for in order for the system to remain um, profitable, it's easier to dispose. Uh, that's how I see it. I, I don't know if that's um, maybe, you know, people might disagree, but I really think that the reasons are ideological and economic. All right. Now, how important is it for a parent to get an IEP for their child? I mean, I think that if a child can qualify for an IEP, it is imperative to get one because it will 
not that, you know, once you have an IEP, everything is great. And now your experience is going to be perfect. Um, but I, I think it can be hugely, it's much better to have it than to not have it and to have at least, even if you're not necessarily getting, I mean, there, you know, the whole thing of like, what happens once you do qualify for an IEP, that's a whole other conversation that we could have. But Generally speaking, an IEP or an individualized education plan is meant to help the student access the curriculum and have meaningful goals that they can actually meet based on their particular diagnosis. It also really puts a student on, you know, the teacher's radar and allows the teacher to at least know, I mean, whether they do it or not, but at least know that they're supposed to try and and, and differentiate and scaffold differently. So if someone qualifies for an IEP or the type of diagnosis that would get you an IEP, then I think it's imperative to get it. I know my IEP came with me from grammar school to high school. And then because of my diagnosis, it helped me out a lot in college Mm. because I was able to go to my disability apartment and say, listen, I have this, this, and this, this is my official documentation. And this is what I need to help me achieve um, to understand and to absorb anything that's being taught to me. Mm-hmm. And they were able to work with the teachers if the teachers wanted to. And I did have some back from a professor who was like, if I help you, that means I got to help everyone else. Yeah. yeah. And I kept pushing and pushing until he said, you know what? Meet me in my office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing for people to recognize is that higher education, so college, is a completely different beast than K through 12. So K through 12, um, kids are protected under IDEA. Um, And so, you know, if they qualify for an IEP, by law, teachers are required to do certain things and, you know, schools are Uh, required to support them in certain ways. That's not necessarily the case in college. And just because you had an IEP or a diagnosis doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to get the the same types of supports in college at all. Um, It's also really important to recognize the differences sort of in, in training. I mean, the average university professor does not have training in, in, pedagogy or education or anything like that. So their views are going to be just completely different. Um, However, with that said, I I think that sort of having that that, um, track record diagnosis, all of that can be hugely helpful in making the transition to college, but it is a a, a totally different beast. All right. Now, when should a parent stop advocating for their child and the child take over advocating for themselves? At what age do you think that child needs to take that step up in responsibility? I don't think that we can expect children to advocate for themselves unless we have, A, explicitly spent time teaching them how to advocate for themselves, and B, they they are in environments in which they're able to advocate for themselves. So I'll give you an example. I have a student right now who's a high schooler um, and she attends a private school um, that is 
really quite, I mean, I, I would go so far as to use the word violence when it comes to wow. kind of their, um, their views about different, I mean, they just do not, they're like, this is the way that we do it. You either, um, you know, you either can, can hack it or, you know, you, you're just not like a so-and-so school kind of student. Um, I would not send that child into that setting and ask them to advocate for themselves because that's just going to traumatize them. And that's not fair. Um, I also don't think that we can, you know, I have, I have another student who is, um, she's a, a fifth grader uh, with dyscalculia, which is a specific learning disability in math. Mm. And um, her school keeps saying, well, if you just have questions, just ask, like just raise your hand and ask. And I don't think that that's fair either. I don't think it's fair for us to, instead of us taking on the responsibility of of helping a child who has a disability to say, oh, the onus is on you to, to ask for the differentiation that you need. I don't think that that's fair either. With that said, I think a huge part of um, the work, for example, that I do as an educational therapist is to help children learn how to advocate for themselves mm -hmm. because that's a life skill, A, that they will need, but B, that is political action. Every time you go in and you advocate for yourself, even in the smallest ways, you are taking a political action against ableism. Mm -hmm. And and that's imperative. And, and you know, it's sort of this this fight. Um, so I don't necessarily think of it as like, oh, when you turn 18, you have to learn how to do this for yourself. I think it's sort of an ongoing thing where we're constantly teaching and, and supporting and scaffolding. Um, but the goal, yes, the goal needs to be for, for students to help to learn how to self-advocate, but only after we've provided the necessary supports. All right. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your project, um, different not deficit project? Yes, thank you so much for asking about that. So um, this is a project that grew out of kind of the isolation of the pandemic. Um, you know, like many, many others, uh, my work like immediately turned into virtual work, um, which ironically was a lot better for some students, but far more difficult for mm -hmm. others. Um, and it was a time where people were really not, you know, they were struggling even more than normal, more than usual um, when it came to getting their services, getting their accommodation, et cetera. Um, and so I, I was like regularly having conversations with families or with students where they were talking about how frustrated they are and how difficult things are. But everyone was just assuming that it's just them. Um, and, you know, but but I was able to see that it's not just them because I was hearing it everywhere. So um, that that project really grew out of that, you know, this this idea of sharing our stories, whether they're stories of success or stories of frustration, struggle, failure, but sharing our stories of how it feels when you have to function in this neurotypical world as mm -hmm. someone who is not neurotypical um, and kind of giving the voice to people to to sort of say, you know, because my, my students would share these stories with me and, you know, then I, I would share their stories with somebody else. And it was just sort of this idea of having a hub where people can go and read others' stories and also share their own so that we, we see that a, a, 
a lot of the disability is basically the system disabling us um, because of the refusal to kind of um, adjust, if you will. So, yeah, that's, you know, and, and especially uh, for your audience, I mean, I, I would love if uh, people would sort of hop onto it. It's my website and then forward slash community and just sort of like go through some of the stories that people have shared and, and maybe share your own. All right. Now, I want to circle back to executive functioning for a minute and ask, can it be improved for cognitive, through um, cognitive training or brain exercises? Um, <laughs> I'm going to say yes and no. All right. Um, I think executive functioning is actually the hardest thing to remediate. Um, there are aspects of it that can be improved. So for example, you can build your, your working memory capacity. You can improve that through cognitive, um, you know, uh, or even your attention capacity through some of that kind of training. Um, you can learn strategies. You can practice, you know, certain strategies and accommodations that really help you. Um, but in terms of, and I, and I don't like to think about it in terms of like fixing it, um, but in my experience, an executive function disorder is a lifelong thing. It's something mm -hmm. that you kind of have to learn how to manage and live with. Um, for certain people, medication can be hugely helpful. Um, for others, not so much. Um, some, you know, certain non-pharmaceutical um, things, you know, we, we have research now, for example, that shows that certain things like saffron, for example, other things can be, uh, I mean, you know, especially when there's comorbidity with mood regulation and all of that. Um, but I, I don't think that it's not the same as, for example, remediating a reading disability. Do you see what I'm saying? So with, with a reading disability, you can, you know, you can drill and build the neuronal synapses of the reading circuitry and help a student break the reading code. Mm -hmm. Yes, they might still be dyslexic all of their lives, but the, the type of improvement that you see in that um, is, is much more tangible mm -hmm. than with something like executive function. All right. Now, the next question is kind of strange, but what do you think of the word neurodistinct over neurodivergent? I don't think I've heard the term neurodistinct. That's interesting. Um, I, I'll just be honest. I don't. I don't love any of this terminology around neuro, <laughs> like <laughs> neurotypical, neurodiverse, neurodivergent. I. I don't. I mean, I, I, as some as someone with background in neuroscience, um, I just have an issue with the prefix neuro because I think that it's sort of become trendy a little bit and like people kind of like slap that um, prefix in front of things. And I don't know, just, I, 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 I think that we have to be clear about the fact that for a very large majority of people, 
we are talking about a disability. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that there are people who under our kind of like, and all this is arbitrary, like we've made up the rules about what's able, what's disabled. I, I recognize that. But I I don't know. I for, To me, like I'd rather not get lost kind of in the terminology. At the end of the day, I'm not one to decide, uh, you know, the, the term that people want to use to describe themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I take a processing approach, you know, to learning. And so even though I think diagnosis is incredibly important, terminology is really important because that's how we, you know, navigate the world. Um, I, I really prefer for people to sort of see themselves in, in all of their own complexity. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Neurodistinct. Um I, I do see the I do see the point about like the word divergent. There's something ableist about it, right? Like there is a way to be, and you're off that track. Um, so so I get it, but I you know I generally think that if we if we worry less about like what is the ideal and or what is the typical, and just kind of look at what exists in front of us. Um, and, and deal with that accordingly in all of its complexity, that, that's probably the easier way. <laughs> all right. And finally, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Sure. Um, I think the best way is my website. You know, uh, it has all of my information, all of my social media links, all of that. Um, my my practice, one of one kids org is we are on um, Instagram, you know, for, for people who are on Instagram. I personally tend to be pretty active on LinkedIn. So you can people can also connect with me under my name on LinkedIn. Um, but really, the hub is my website www.oneofonekids.org. And that's it, everyone. That was Dr. B.B. Priyash. And I'll see you in the next one. And remember, we're different, not less. See you there, everyone. <laughs> I want to believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking. Bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. I want to believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking. Bottle up my intuition till it's popping out the box that I don't fit in. Shape shifting, same player, different position. The definition could stick with them. Drifting through these layers of wisdom. I took a break from tradition. I move away from what's expected. Change the music, ride the wave, but keep the message. Question this dimension is still deception. Every entrance have good intentions, no exceptions. And leave the rest up to the heavens. Your only plan to be the seeker and become yourself. Because more than half would you believe in was crafted to be misleading. For the benefit of someone else I want to believe in the truth But only see what I'm shown Got the freedom to choose But can't decide on my own Follow what the group is thinking Bottle up my intuition Till it's popping out the box That I don't fit in I want to believe in the truth But only see what I'm shown Got the freedom to choose But can't decide on my own Follow what the group is thinking Bottle up my intuition Till it's popping out the box That I don't, I don't fit in Hey, hey, yeah, I don't fit in Applause. I don't walk right into traps. While you closing in the walls, I be using out the cracks. Sit and relax, don't breathe. These are the facts. Supposedly, stutters. Living a mask, suckers. Keep moving along, get the beat. Brainwash, rinse and repeat. Keep pulling about with the sheep. I'll go, bottle with Eve. Know what I mean? Probably not. Honesty, shots, it's fine. The only box I'll ever fit in is the one that I die. I wanna believe in the 
truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking, bottle up my intuition till it's popping up a box that I don't fit. Wanna believe in the truth, but only see what I'm shown. Got the freedom to choose, but can't decide on my own. Follow what the group is thinking, bottle up my intuition till it's popping up a box that I don't fit in. Hey, hey, yeah, I don't fit in. 